episode 86 of Strange Brow Radio. Here we go again. I'm your host, Tobe Johnson, and today's guest from Bothell, Washington, the Bothell Hell House type of Washington, is author Keith Linder, experiencer Keith Linder. You may have seen his episode on the Travel Channel with the ghost adventure Carew. They gave Keith a hard time, but I'm checking into the ins and outs of Keith's story. And there's a lot here, so I think we're about ready to clear his name. Let's talk to Keith Linder in a moment. But first, tell you about Etsy. There you can go to Feral by Aaron, E-R-Y-N, all one word, and check out Alchemy Sound Tools. And when you do, if you're interested in what you see, uh, let her know. Let her know how you heard about it. Sometimes we don't know. And if you just say, oh, I heard it on this podcast, Strange Bell Radio, it goes a long way. So Feral by Aaron, E-R-Y-N. Also, if you're ever in town, up in northern Washington, go to the Manresa Castle in Port Townsend, Washington. They're wide open now. Haunted tours, well, sort of, but definitely a fantastic menu. Good drinks and loads of history at Manresa Castle. All right, we'll be back in a moment with our guest, Keith Linder. As I said, our guest today is author experiencer out of Bothell, Washington, which is just a ferry ride away for me, Keith Linder, and the book, The Bothell Hell House, a poltergeist, the poltergeist of Washington State, that's part one. And then part two is the book, Attachments. Again, the poltergeist of Washington State. So not only do we talk about his book, but we talk about his time in the house. We talk about his episode with Mr. Baggins and the 40-some minutes uh, in that episode. You know, they spend relatively little time uh, actually doing the investigation comparatively to what other people do that actually live there or in this case stayed for uh, you know a week to three weeks other investigators have and come away with Keith's story being credible and so they didn't exactly get a fair shake uh, during that so I interview Keith and talk to Keith uh, about his house out in Bothell and we go over quite a bit a lot of things I didn't know a lot of things Hopefully you didn't know, and I think they're pretty shocking. So uh, we're going to get into that. Also, there's a documentary on YouTube, a free documentary called Demons in Seattle Uncovered. It is by uh, director Don Phillips, and a team of investigators came in from the UK, including Scotland, and uh, looked into the claims of Keith and his girlfriend at the time, Tina. The quick and the short is that their house was infested with something that uh, seemed pretty demonic. And so Keith and his girlfriend had to put up with it and figure out how to live with it. And uh, that's when the team from Ghost Adventures got a hold of them to shoot an episode. And so Keith and I talk about what happened during that briefly, but I'm mainly interested in Keith's story after... The Travel Channel left, and what happened in that house, the prior residents that lived in the house, the current residents that live in the house, what the history of the house, what's around the house, 
and what do we know archaeologically about what's under it. So it's it's a really fascinating conversation. And part three of the book, uh, part three of his book series will uh, be coming out later this year, early next year. And so it's a really interesting conversation about what's coming out in part three, one that I, I really enjoyed having with him. So one thing I want to mention before we put Keith on is going back to supporting local businesses. If you can, I would find a way to do it quickly because as things tighten up around you, local businesses won't be able to do what corporations will be able to do. And that's why I mentioned specifically uh, the town of Port Townsend's Manresa Castle. Not only did we do live events there, we hope to do one more live event this year, if not more, in an outdoor setting. But Manresa Castle is just historic. And if you haven't been there, you should at least go online and check out Manresa Castle in Port Townsend, Washington. And the owner, Cameron Roberts, who owns the bar half of there, is struggling to open and reopen. Uh, but he has such a talented staff and an amazing cook, which is his wife. And they have fantastic drinks and fantastic ambiance in a historic town. And so if you can, uh, go be a patron over there and let them know that Strange Brow Radio sent you. Because uh, I enjoy mentioning them uh, on air. I enjoy going there. It's about a you know hour and a half drive for me to get there, but it's... Uh, relatively close speaking so do try to get there enjoy your time at Manresa Castle it's right next to amazing spots downtown next to historic Fort Warden and you could make a whole day a weekend of it you could stay at Manresa Castle I suggest uh, trying to stay up in the uh, turret room on the third floor there's some some history there for sure, but it's it's a wonderful place to look up and stay. So Manresa Castle can't say enough about it. Um, okay, I hope you guys listened to last week's episode regarding the UFO news that's come forth. Very specific wording from the Pentagon about crashed UFOs or UFO retrievals, unidentified flying objects, or UAPs. And having more than metamaterial on hand. They use the word, we don't have these materials from this this earth. Which I thought was interesting. Uh, made of materials, not from this earth. Just listen to the wording of that. Because that's in quotes. This earth. Well, someone decided that. You don't go do a, a press release and talk about something that's been so confidential for so long. Without parsing every sentence, every word, the flow, the meter. Um, someone decided this earth. So what other earths are there? That's my question. And it may open up a, a larger, I guess, uh, conundrum, secret question to ask about uh, other realities or other planets. This is all happening now under our watch. And it's yours to do with what you want my question is uh, who's going to run the narrative them or us or is there going to be a, a scrimmage in between it always seems like we're the last to know 
but I'll try to give the information to you as soon as I know so you at least know before your neighbor. And that's the way I'll try to do it. And I'll try to... I think you guys like the news portion of things here. And so I'll I'll try to come back in a little bit more often for you here before our, our guest and inform you on things. Also... If you go into SoundCloud and type in uh, Strange Brow Radio, you'll see more updates uh, from some experiments we're doing here, including a test on who I call Hilda and Bobby. And um, we're basically using them as trigger objects or tulpas to see if we can elicit some kind of supernatural sound moment. Not running video, just audio. And so they are tucked away in their little dollhouse right now which is outside and uh things are getting more interesting as we we go on so again go to soundcloud type in strange brow radio and you'll see on there the experiments of the uh, two dolls i understand dolls are not everybody's favorite they just don't creep me out so that's all that matters all right what will creep you out is our next guest story here Keith Linder and the Bothell Hell House. All right, on the phone with me now is Keith Linder in Bothell, Washington, author of the first book, The Bothell Hell House, a poltergeist of watching the poltergeist of Washington State, and part two, the author of Attachments, Poltergeist of Washington State. So hello, Keith. Hello, hello. Uh, it's good to have, yeah man it's it's good to have a neighbor on here that uh can understand <laughs> can understand these things a little bit so it's it's comforting know, to right? have you on here and um you know i've already told the audience who you are reminded them uh, of your case and so many people in this community know about the bothell hellhouse know about everything that unfolded on the travel channel and you know those 49 minutes or however long the episode was out of ghost adventures painted a picture of you and it was kind of case closed and a lot of eye rolling but i don't want to do that to you because i think there's something here and after going through you know uh three hours of of catching up on where you were and where you've been and where you are I'm telling you, audience, there's something going on here. And, you know, it's a smart audience I have, Keith, and we're not going to have to convince them over the type of language that you're going to use here describing entities okay. or the spirit form. They understand all that. They've, they've caught themselves up, you know, on the prior 90 episodes we've done here. So um, I don't really want you to have to walk too far down buying the Bothell house and all the, you know, the steps that you've done before. But we need to go into that territory a little bit. And especially if there's new information that has come out since then that you'd like to explore. So tell people briefly about, uh, you know, when you moved into the supposed or reported Hell House and uh, what your experiences were there. Uh, yeah, good question. Um, so me and my girlfriend, ex-girlfriend now, uh, Tina, um, we moved into this, this house uh, May 1st of 2012. And um, Bothell was 
maybe, I don't know, on a good day, uh, like now, 20-minute drive from Seattle, going north, northeast. And um, me and Tina had been together for two years prior. She had her place. I had mine. And, uh, yeah, just like anybody or any other uh, average couple, uh, we moved in and uh, began experiencing phenomena uh, right away. Um, on day one, when we, when we got the keys to the house, signed the papers, shook the homeowner's hand and did the tour de France inside the home, uh, he left and it's just me and my girlfriend there. House is empty, vacant. And during the middle of our conversation, uh, a kid cough cuts in, just out the blue, very loud, very distinct. And I wrote this in my uh, first book, and, 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 and how it transpired, because I believe this is very important. Um, it was one of those instances where me and Tina were sitting side by side. We heard the same thing, and we said the same thing at the same time. Was that a kid cough? I kid you not. So it was never one of, hey, I think I heard something. Did you hear it? Or she came from outside, and I had to retell the story to her. We heard it at the very same time. It sounded like it came from one of the upstairs bedrooms. Now, me and Tina have no experience with the paranormal. We know zilch about it. Uh, we're just um, house high right now. We're, love, we're in love with this house. We like it. We think it was a good decision. And um, we must have maybe talked about the weird voice for about five minutes. But we wasn't nowhere close to thinking it was ghost or paranormal or poltergeist related. It sounded weird. It definitely came or sounded like it came from upstairs, but maybe it did. You know, who are we? Who are we to determine? Maybe it came from outside, but it was weird. And we made a mental note. But after five minutes, we went on about our business. Fast forward two weeks, three weeks into the home. Now we're we're living in the home. We're we're moving in, and we both notice at the same time again that objects are missing. My car keys, meaning my extra set of car keys, aka car fob, called car fobs nowadays, but it was my pair that I never used. It was a pair that I kept in a plastic container glove box in my safe. And I remember I didn't give it to the movers. I hand walked it over and drove it myself. And I've never used these keys, but they're gone. I went to retrieve another item and I noticed, ah, my keys are gone. And Tina's coming to me with her uh, instances of missing jewelry. Uh, we're both coming to each other with instances of missing silverware. And that's pretty much the precursor uh, to everything that's known about this case, about how activity starts off slow, gradual, missing items, uh, phantom footsteps we heard them. Uh, waking up in the morning and finding every kitchen cabinet door wide open. Uh, nothing being rummaged through, nothing being taken out or rearranged. It's just mm -hmm. a weird tapestry of why are all my kitchen cabinet doors and kitchen closet door wide open? No mm -hmm. earthquake the night before. That's a two-story home. And to add, I guess, sort of more mystery is the kid toys and we don't have kids, nobody's living in the home with us, we're finding kid toys displayed out in the open, 
in the home, you wake up in the morning, go down for a cup of coffee, there are kid, kid toys on the stairwell, coffee table, kitchen counter, almost deliberately put in plain sight so you don't overlook them. And you pick these toys up and you can't make heads or tails. And our and once again, we're not nowhere near Tina. Our knowledge of the paranormal is zero. So our rational explanation that we're telling ourselves is somebody's pranking us. Somebody has a third set of keys that are coming in very cleverly, mind you, very dangerous to do while we're asleep and putting kit toys everywhere, leaving kitchen cabinet doors wide open. And then I guess the day of true realization was the day the plant levitated off the floor. And I mean levitated and darting upward <clears throat> while we were watching a movie together. And that was about June or July of 2012, this plant. And then there's no rational for that. There's no explanation, you know, scientifically for that, of why a plant would dart up straight up do a 360-degree spin and fall back to the ground. Now, we rushed to the plant, obviously, and looked for a wire or remote control device or some sort of control mechanism. And it was Tina's plant. It was not, it was not like the plant was there when we got there, so it was, she brought it in with her. So then we said, aha, I think we have a kid ghost living with us, especially because that night after the plant levitated, we went to my office and Google searched online of, how can you tell if your house is haunted? And everything, I kid you not, everything that we found on the internet, we had already experienced. We were like in phase, early phase one of, yeah, these things are happening, these things are happening, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Yeah, your house might be haunted, and now we got this levitating plant, and we're like, ah, oh, that's what that kid cough was about. So yeah, that, that was the earliest phases, or the early stage I should say. Okay, great. Um, and there's a lot more. I mean, uh, you're just touching oh, yeah. on the on the highlights here as well. But I want to go to the toys here for a second. You said that the toys were left out so you could uh, see them. You couldn't miss them. Um, tell me a little bit m more about what types of toys and how they were placed and where. Yeah, so these toys, um, <clears throat> two kinds, two types. Jewelry, female jewelry, young, like, uh, I don't know, six, seven, maybe younger, female jewelry, earring, trinket, something like that. Um, not expensive by any means, but jewelry nonetheless. And the toys uh, were like um, old Hot Wheel cars. You know, remember the Hot Wheel cars? I, I guess they still make them. I played with them growing up. But, right, sure. Um, and... Um, but not of this time period. I know enough about toys to recognize that I have nieces and nephews and say, ah, this toy just came out, okay. But I know a toy that's years old. And these toys were dated. You know, they looked like they did not fit this house. You know, how could a toy, unless somebody was collecting them, the house was built in 2005, and these toys look way older than that. But they were still toys. And we start collecting them. I mean, it was weird that you would have this. So I did it, toss them aside, I just threw them in a, in a drawer. And you, it, it became a, almost a routine of waking up 
finding toy spiders, toy trucks, toy cars. Uh, the toy spiders were about the size of the, that would fit in the Cracker Jack box, as well as the, as the cars. But that was it. And and that and, like, and one of the things I learned later, and this is much later, is with this type of phenomena, poltergeist phenomena, and that's what this was later declared. Everything happens in phases. We're being weighed right now, me and Tina. We're being weighed and introduced to the paranormal. Mm-hmm. And we're trying, the, the spirits behind all of this are trying very cleverly to engage us. Mm-hmm. And by us engaging, maybe overcompensating, mm-hmm. uh, responding is going to elevate the activity further. You know, now that we, once we saw the plant levitate, I kid you not, I, I believe within 24 hours came the loud banging. And I believe within mm-hmm. 48 hours came objects being thrown. Objects being thrown, all of Tina's plants, pottery, ironing board, iron. You know, iron's a pretty, you know, nobody wants to ever want to get hit by an iron. You know, iron your clothes, yes, but not get hit by one. These things are now becoming projectiles, and they zoom by the corner of your eye, and boom, you look noise and oh there's an iron there or oh my god Tina's plant again it, it shatters upon impact as soon as it hits the wall and these this becomes a nightly routine because we work during the day we get home about five or six and about 8 p.m it's it, 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 it's fun time from the ghost point of view it's fun time up right. until the time we go to bed and time to wake up in the morning it's fun time and you said something, too, in one of your interviews that you said once an th- object is thrown, it almost releases a, a behavior for a couple of weeks of throwing stuff constantly. Is that is that right? Yeah. So, yeah, objects start off in phases, meaning small, medium, large. Uh, the plants, the iron, um, ironing board, uh, lamp. Lamp shade, a can of starch, um, ashtray. I mean, it, it went from small, medium to large in the frequency of, you know, okay, we have one item being thrown tonight. Okay, the next one be thrown 24 to 48 hours. Now it's, oh, two items are being thrown tonight. You know, when we get a plant, you know, we try to save it by, you know, resuscitating it by putting it in new pottery, new dirt. And they would throw that same plant again, you know, almost deliberately to taunt you. And yeah, mm-hmm. or it would throw, because I iron my clothes, we have the hallway upstairs, and there's a video on my YouTube channel that shows the ironing board being thrown. Mm-hmm. And you see an ironing board be thrown. I, I, I have a camera mm-hmm. trained on the office because that was happening every night. You can almost set your watch to it. And sure enough, it would be thrown and you know, it makes a lot of ruckus, a lot of noise in respond to it, and yeah, you it's, it's a mess everywhere. So yeah, different different sizes. Um, it seemed like nothing was off the table as far as being thrown. Um, but the, the, the worst, like I said, is yet to come. This is still introducing Keith and Tina to the program. Yeah, and what's interesting about this here, and I just want to get right to it with you, is 
you have a real um, low uh, fear factor <laughs> to when it comes to the things that are happening to you on camera. You you have a very cool, calm, and collected Bothell approach to this all, Keith. And so I think people are distracted by that and interpret that as something, you yeah. know, that you've internalized this because you're hoaxing it. I don't think you're hoaxing this at all. You just have a, a low fear factor. Talk a little bit about what that's like and what's what's going on in Keith's head as this shit's happening. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because we got I got deemed for that a yeah. lot. And when I reported my phenomena on video or people see the phenomena, they're like, no way, he's too calm for that. He's too calm. <laughs> right. And people don't understand there's two dimensions to that aspect when you just talk about it and i'll talk about both of them the first one is you're right i do have a low fear factor i have a calm demeanor i wrote in my first book that my profession i've been in this profession going on 30 years is customer facing i am a problem solver and i've been and seen and heard the worst that customers have thrown at me over the phone or in their face or via email and we're trained to not take the customer's frustration out. I mean, it's horrible. It's terrible. Personally, don't separate the frustration from the individual, meaning yourself, and then respond by solving the customer's problem. Dial them back. You know, the customer wants you to sue you, call you all kind of names over the phone. You know, in one ear, out the other is my expression. Okay, and I incorporated that with the phenomena. Now, one thing about the phenomena is it's happening in real time. In my IT background, the things I'm seeing defy the laws of physics or the laws of gravity as we understand it. And I'm equally discerned, scared, uh, but in control, but at the same time, amazed because I can't believe I'm witnessing this. Like, you know, it's that realization of, is this really happening to me? Mm -hmm. You know, when an object levitates, you never live your life thinking you're gonna see something like this. And when you do, mm -hmm. you're really forced with two reactions, fight or flee, you know? And me and Tina, we did not have the, cause she's in the same field I am sort of, of fleeing. Now it was scary, it was discerning, but once again, my logic took over in the sense of, to use an analogy of, you know, one of my favorite sci-fi characters, Mr. Spock. Because people always tell me, who, who study the paranormal, who, who, who go after the paranormal, well, didn't you think they would kill you or you would die? Or, and I'm like, you know what? My logic is, if they wanted to kill us, based on what I've seen, we'd be dead already, right? I mean, come on. I'm sleeping. I'm knocked out. You obviously can throw objects while I'm mm -hmm. awake. It's not far-fetched, so you think of doing while I'm asleep. Mm -hmm. You can set a fire and lock every door in the house, and I can't get out. So I don't think it's what they're after. I don't think death is what they're after. I think fear. They want to invoke fear because they get stronger off of that. Mm -hmm. And I later confirmed that theory by when I would talk to paranormal teams in the churches who were very familiar with this phenomenon, and they tell you, and we're being guided, of... Don't overreact. Don't give it to fear. And I was really sort of peeved, to put it lightly, that Ghost Adventures exploited that 
well, look at his calm demeanor. You know, look mm-hmm. at his da 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 da. You know, I can understand. I I can't understand why a Zach Baggins, after twenty years of TV shows, still jumps at stuff. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, come on. Yeah. I mean, I I living in the house at Ground Zero, <laughs> never experienced the paranormal. Mm-hmm. I didn't leap and jump and weak and ah. And all, and I mean, I mean, yeah. You throw that back at me and Tina when in fact that's what you're supposed to do because believe it or not, if we give it to the fear or overcompensate too much, mm-hmm. the poetry guys takes a mental note of that and says, aha, okay. Yeah, it's, it's like putting logs on the fire. Fear, mm-hmm. overreaction is like putting more logs on the fire. And I was really surprised that we got Dean for our calm demeanor because mm-hmm. It was, people were just getting a one-dimensional look at Keith and Tina without asking the question you asked of, mm-hmm. what's, his, what's his occupation? What's his life like? What's mm-hmm. he been in life? Where has he been? You know, da 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 Is he an Army veteran? Did mm-hmm. he get a storm? da 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 You know, right. everybody reacts differently. And quite honestly, our, my calm demeanor probably saved me. I'm pretty sure it did. Yeah, and you were utterly transparent and have been totally transparent all the way through here and invited pretty much anybody that showed interest, an honest interest in your case to come in, look at you thoroughly, look at Tina thoroughly. And um, you've come away with quite a bit. I mean, there's been at least three solid teams that have come into your house. There's been at least one documentary that people can find online, a couple different books. And everybody that I found has had legitimate experiences at your place and have come away with some amazing details about the case here. So let's talk a little bit about the things that um, has you know happened at the house that were open books uh, after the Travel Channel. And now that seems like we're coming to some solid evidence, the writing in particular um, yeah. on the wall was uh, a mishmash of different cultures being represented and but the writing on the wall is this black smoky substance that at the time we didn't really know what was happening it just looked like graffiti out of a paint can but it it certainly is not according to the analysis that you've had done on this so describe yeah. a little bit about that yeah so i mean poetry guys wall writers like i said um Nothing new in the documented cases of previous Portuguese cases, um, but every case is different. There's been cases that were reported um, paint, blood, plasma, unknown substance, yellow, you know, and us, it was black oil. You know, it, it escalated to this mysterious black oily like substance. And at first, we were just told to always paint over it right away. Hey, no, 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 don't let the spirit get a hold of your home, paint over that stuff right away. But the last substance I didn't paint over because I was asked not to, once again, by Ghost and Pictures. And I thought they were going to take some of it with them. I thought they were going to chisel, carve out, ask me. I would say, yeah, um, take it with you, take it to a lab, and tell the world what that stuff is made out of. Because understanding, once again, I'm in IT. I'm not an investigator, but I know you just can't base everything on appearance. If it looks like spray paint, you got to confirm that theory. I think it's spray paint. Okay, test it. And let the test tell you. If you're right, you're right. Then I'm in trouble. If you're wrong, 
we got a true mystery here. So nobody did that. Nobody tested it. People came, saw, laughed, theorized. Nobody wants to test the black oil. The oil is staring them in the face. Finally, I did. And when I did, the results came back organic material. It was, it was a, it was a equipment called an XRD or XRF gun. Highly expensive. It tests metal. It tests paint material. The gun itself costs about twenty to sixty thousand dollars. It's about the size of a. I mean, it's more controlled device. That's about the size of it, but it costs about twenty to sixty thousand dollars. So it's not readily available, obviously. But uh, we did test it, and it came back the materials almost identical to what bone black, the substance is made out of. Bone black, AKA bone char, bone ash. Now when the gun analyzes the, the substance, it doesn't tell you what bone, that is bone black. It tells you what the substance is made out of. It gives you every ingredient. So now I have to shop around on my, with this notepad of everything the, the XRD gun pulled up. And I'm calling these art museums from various cities in the country, asking them, while showing them pictures of the bone black or, or the black oil. And I'm asking because I want them to look at the picture and I'm going to give them the ingredients of what I got off this device. And some of these art galleries, like I said, had this device because, again, they're an art gallery. And they came back and said, that's bone black. I never heard of bone black, like I never heard of poltergeist, apparition, things of that nature. So I'm like, bone black, what is that? And the guy on the phone's like, that's a rare form of paint. It's one of the original forms of paint used for uh, calligraphy or picography. And I, in my brain, like, aha, oh, I'm close to something because if you see in the wall writings in my office, some of it is calligraphy or pictography, meaning the upside down man. That's a symbol. And at that time, I already knew that that symbol is a Native American symbol. I've been through history. You've been through history growing up. You know Native Americans wrote symbols uh-huh. for pictography. So now I'm like, ah, okay, now the pieces are sort of following into place because you talk about bone black, bone uh-huh. ash, one of the oldest forms of painting. And I asked people, well, what is it made out of? I mean, I got all these ingredients here, phosphate and, and other things. And they said, oh, it's incinerated. The reason why it's called bone black is because it's incinerated bison bone, buffalo bone. And these are their words, not mine. I'm like, once again, aha, buffalo bone. And, that's a, and I'm like, well, why did they incinerate the buffalo bones in, in the historical? And like, nothing I'm saying is made up, so anybody can Google search this and find it themselves. Bone black and bone ash became prevalent in the 1800s, especially the mid-1800s, near the mass extinction of the North American or American buffalo. The carcass was always left behind. It was the hide that was most valuable until somebody in the plane said we can make the hide, meaning the bones, 
a commodity if we reduce the bone to bone ash and sell it as bone black, meaning black paint. Okay. And that's where it originated from in North America. But however, the person got that idea from Native Americans who had been using bone black for centuries. Okay, they've been using it for centuries. They've been reducing it down. So that in itself just made my mouth drop because <laughs> now I know what the substance is made out of and the mannerism in which it's made just, just boggles the mind. Intense heat of buffalo or bison bone and they use every portion of the bone of the, of the bison except the head. And if you reduce it down, confine it down, mm -hmm. it becomes a charcoal-like powder. Today is used for infiltration, uh, but still certain places use it for black paint. You cannot buy it off the store. Anybody, you cannot call Home Depot. And I always tell people, because they oh, it was fake, it was spray paint. I say, call Home Depot, your neighborhood Home Depot, or Lowe's, or anywhere, and ask them for a can of bone black. Right. They're going to put you on hold, or they're going to come back and say, huh, what the heck are you talking about? Because it's not readily available to a consumer like you and I. Anybody who studies art and paint, who knows Rembrandt and Picasso, who used it, matter of fact, would know what bone black is. I didn't know what it was, but this was an education for me. And it adds to what we had already been capturing about the upside down man symbol, the Native American EVPs, the history of Bothell, the Native Americans that were in the area of Bothell, something that we debunked Ghost Adventures when they said they could, they could not find any evidence of Native American ever mm -hmm. living in Bothell, which I just told you, you're, and you're in the same region of the world that I am. You know, that's just totally ludicrous. I can't even, I can't, still to this day, I can't believe they set that on national TV. <laughs> all anybody has to do is right now is Google Bothell, Washington, and look up the counties here. And you'll see relatively, it's still today, that this area is heavily Native American. So I, I don't know where they went with that, but it was just totally off. So yeah, that's what, that, that was the wall substance, what? was made on a bone black. Well, yeah, and uh you know the the manner in which it was laid down on your drywall, the this two-part undulation cobwebbing um is yeah. very artistic and strange looking. Now, we'll go ahead and move into this territory, but um you had a documentary crew out there from the UK, a guy by the name of Don Phillips brought his team out and some other people from Scotland as as well and they did some pretty intense analysis on this writing on the wall what did they walk away with well yeah the wall writing intrigued everyone including Don uh, Phillips Steve Mara and uh, you're right Nick Kyle who was the president at the time of the SSPR one of the oldest paranormal orgs in the world and these individuals lived in the home two and a half weeks they lived keyword lived in the home and they did what most vetted researchers do is you study the evidence, you study the wall writings. They, they took pictures, they measured it, uh, they presented it to, you know, paint experts, to colleagues. And they're concluding, you know, anybody who, you know, looks at it objectively will see, 
Keith didn't paint this stuff. I mean, it's on the ceiling. It's on every four walls in the office. Uh, some of it protrudes or extends behind the office appliances, the TV, the computer desk, stereo, the speaker, the entertainment center. They didn't do this stuff. And Steve and Don and their analysis came, you know, were able to see that rather quickly uh, upon entering the home and living in the home. And when you see the analysis, like I said, of the bone black, and it's not a readily available paint substance that you can buy, um, it becomes apparent, yeah, yeah, this is, but you have to understand Portuguese to be able to understand Portuguese have done this for centuries, you know, and only recently, and I hope this continues because this rarely happens. Most Portuguese, when they write on the wall, People erase that stuff right away because they're so frightened. You know, they, they, they don't want they, they're thinking in their mind, and it's, and it's, it's a justifiable fear because we had we had the same fear. Um, you want to just paint over it right away. Well, you can't test it. Then. You know, it's contaminated. It's gone. And this portrait, guys, because you see my you see my the other wall writings. I believe this portrait guys wanted this stuff to be known. It wrote so many times that we would paint over the wall. And the paint would bleed through the primer. It would bleed through the paint. We'd buy bucket after bucket. And finally, when we got to the, the right bucket of paint to where you can't see the substance anymore, the Portuguese would write again. That's why if you see my that office from the beginning on my YouTube channel to where it is now, you can see the different shades of paint of me constantly painting, painting, painting over wall writings. So finally, I say, I'm not painting over it anymore. It's, it becomes redundant. Until we solve the poacher guy's problem, <laughs> I'm not painting it over the wall anymore. And, and, and the last time I didn't paint over it allowed me to get that analysis. But that never would have mm. happened if I would have just painted over it. No. And we, we, we never would have. Then somebody would say, oh, yeah, it was spray paint. Yeah, yeah that's why he was to, in a hurry to paint over it. Yeah, you have to paint, paint your whole place bone black. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. And the, the bone black that you can buy doesn't come in the paint buckets that you and I would normally buy paint for. It comes in like nails, polish size. Right. <laughs> also, um, the people don't know that, and they just go to the knee-jerk reaction that, ah, oh, it's great, man, or he did himself, or looks mm-hmm. amateur. See, I could have done that. And that's the wrong approach to take when you look at mm-hmm. this type of phenomena because mm-hmm. the Portuguese knows this. The Portuguese in our house knew, has a level IQ, to where it's gonna everything it's gonna do, it's gonna to have to benefit the Portuguese and not benefit Keith and Tina. So when Zach and other people say, Oh, it looks like spray paint, that's why it did it in that manner. Okay, it did it in that manner to suggest fake through. Okay, to where if you just look at it at a glance, ah yeah, spray paint. Ah, six six six, ah, Keith and Tina, it's too many Hollywood movies, that's so generic, so cliche. Mm-hmm. It knows that. But the thing the Portuguese doesn't know or doesn't think you're going to do, and it was right, it's proof the concept was right, is the teams that come in are not going to test it, you know. But I did. I finally did. And when I finally did, and I went back to these people like, aha, you still think it's spray paint now? They have nothing to say. They're like, oh, 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 bone black? Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So, so yeah, it was interesting. 
Yeah, and you save that report from the test uh, of the writing? Yeah, yeah, I put that in both books. All that's yeah. in both books. Yeah, I mean, good for you. That's fantastic. And, uh, you know, just to give a, a little, I mean, I'm an artist. I, I don't work specifically with Indian ink, uh, but we do some drum building out here in Port Orchard and have a little Etsy shop. And um, the type of supplies that Keith's talking about, uh, these are very expensive things to go try and find. You don't just hop yes. on Amazon and buy Bone Black. Um, so it would be a very yeah. costly ruse to, to pull. Very costly. Very. Get it in the quantity that you would need it. Yeah, it just don't make any sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, let's, um, let's move on from... Um, Travel Channel and Ghost Adventures. I want to talk about your time with the people that have lived at your residence, like this Don Phillips or Carissa yes. Hartley. She spent three weeks there, and her testimony yes. of your place is incredible. Um, I mean, you, yeah. like I said, you've invited people to come in and basically have free reign to debunk this place, and they just can't. Um, they're walking away with stuff uh, specifically about the Duwamish. Uh, Native Americans out that way that were all over the creek beds, all over the lakes, pretty much any yeah. valley that had an open floor that was, you know, had food coming out of the river system or the streams was where you'd find the Duwamish over there. So for there to not be Duwamish in your area would be kind of nuts. But it wasn't just the Duwamish that they came away talking about. They talked about your place being built atop something that the construction crew um, I found pretty interesting what they were finding when they were digging there. Why don't you start with what uh, Don found out with that? Yeah, so Don Phillips and Steve Merrick lived in the home January and April of 2016. Carissa, uh, Nikki Novell uh, came pretty much almost simultaneously in January slash February of 2016. And Carissa did stay three and a half weeks. Nick, Nikki Novell a uh, week and uh, two days, I believe. <clears throat> and Don and Steve, coming from the UK, um, when they arrived in the home, it was always a contingent that they're going to live in the home. You got to live at ground zero. And this immediately started encountering phenomena and gathering data and evidence uh, because it was it was readily available in a sense of their methodology combined with what the spirits found receptive um, did phenomena around them. Now, one of the things that made Dawn go underneath the house, the first person ever and the only person ever to go underneath the house, and he conducted about an hour, hour and a half long EVP session Q&A, and that's in his documentary, uh, so people can see that, and it's free on YouTube. And... He's conducting e multiple EVP sessions, and he's asking the question out loud because he's trying to get to the truth of, are there any Native American spirits here? Are there any presence here? Uh, is there any relationship to that in the land and what Keith is experiencing? And he's getting several yeses from both underneath the house and from the time he went to the creek, which is right behind the house. Not, to people, not too many people know about the creek, that runs right behind the house through the neighborhood and is running water through that. So he spent about another hour and a half behind there. And one of the things they found out prior to arriving, because they interviewed me and they 
did their research online. And Father Roy, Father Roy was a priest who conducted a house exorcism of the house. And he, through his research, had uncovered uh, that there was Native American burial in and around the city of Bothell uh, due to a smallpox outbreak in the mid-1800s uh, where 500 Native Americans, unfortunately, were put in mass graves. Now, the exact location of this area is impossible to know because I found out through my research um, that the, the Snohomish County, which is where Bothell is located, as well as King County, didn't really start keeping good record data <clears throat> on cemeteries of both settlers and Native Americans until 1973. I believe it was 1973 that they didn't start keeping good record data. So everything prior to that was suspect and lost. However, there is documented record, and this once again in my book, especially my second book, links to, but anybody can go online and search themselves, of the mass, um, I guess, smallpox outbreak that pretty much consumed Pacific Northwest, uh, which included Bothell, uh, the Duwamish tribe, AKA the Willow people uh, at that time, as they were called, uh, lost between 500 of themselves during this smallpox outbreak. So if you look at the Native American symbol, the upside down man on my wall, and you look that up online, you'll see there's only really two instances where you, a Native American person would draw that symbol. And it means a man has died, obviously, but it means also that either a man was either murdered or it could also mean that a man died due to smallpox or another form of disease. That's the only two times that that symbol would necessarily be drawn. Therefore, you can take it either way. Was a Native American murdered in and around that house or that land? I'm not talking about the house or the land mm -hmm. directly underneath the house. I'm talking about the vicinity. Mm -hmm. Or did a man die due to smallpox? Both is true. We know through the history, through the founding of the Pacific Northwest, Seattle and everything surrounding it, there were factions and wars and outbreaks between Settler and Native American, <clears throat> Chief Seattle and whatnot. I mean, the history is there. So you, uh, Native Americans murdered Settlers, Settlers murdered Native Americans, smallpox went, ran amok. Both sides had major casualties. So the spirit who's drawn out on the wall and then the EVPs that Carissa captured, Vicky captured, and these are some good EVPs. You probably heard some of them. The Dawn captured, the Steve Mara captured, um, you know, sort of support what you see about the house or what you know about the house because the spirits are saying very cleverly, yeah, Native American, yeah, it's related to the land, you know. And so that was interesting. And it's not far, you know, or hard to believe in my, in my, from my point of view that a lot of the phenomena, I, 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 and I said this in my second book, it's, it's, it's sort of like, um, I don't know, vengeful or avenging spirits, if you call it. Uh, also, and this is very important to note for your listeners, because I know this question exists out there, there was a family who had activity five years before we arrived, which Ghost Adventure once again didn't interview. But 
but they had activity. I found them, Rhonda, the wife, the housewife, the mother, told her story to me. And this is, like I said, documented in book one and book two, that conversation, the emails back and forth. And she said the house is a living hell. And they were had similar phenomena which we opened your show with. They were having the same type of phenomena, missing objects, looking cabinet doors, electrical issues, phantom footsteps. Mm-hmm. And saw shadowy figures at the corner of his eye. I saw that too. So when she told me that, it was like, I'm glad to hear mm-hmm. it because you know, going crazy. And they let me know that the problem is not pertaining to me and Tina specifically but it's pertaining to this house, something about this house in this geographical location, in addition to the horror uh, that Rhonda unfortunately experienced in the home of being assaulted, which is very detailed and graphic in book two and book one of that instance, sort of made this house be what it is today. No, it's a, it's fantastic details here uh, in this documentary. It's called the uh, demons in seattle uncovered and you can find it free on youtube i strongly suggest everybody watch this as a case file on how a haunting works um and it doesn't always like to show itself to specific people or specific groups Uh, would you would you agree that the house kind of once in a while likes to make an ass out of the people that live in it oh yes Oh, yeah. yeah, all the time, all the time. The house wants to make an ass out of the house occupants for the fear of isolation. You, you bring help in, no activity, right? I mean, I hate it when I go to my auto mechanic and my car is making noise or engine light, right? And the engine light turns off the minute I pull into the parking lot of the car and everybody's like, oh, your car's fine. It's like, yeah, we, we did a test, da, 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 da. No, it's not, no, it's not. And only weeks later did they determine there was something, but never used it the first time. But yeah, the spirit's there to make you look stupid, like you got delusions of grandeur, mm-hmm. you know, to the to the investigator. It's the investigator's job, in my opinion, mm-hmm. to know that in advance, right? To know that the spirits are going to be evasive. Mm-hmm. They're not going to give evidence willingly. And if you saw the documentary, it sounds like you did. Steve comments on that. He's like, we had to train, change our investigative method in Keith Linder's house. Today we saw the camera turn or be turned 180 degrees facing the wall. One of Keith's things he was getting deemed on online by Dave Schrader's of the world and whatnot was everything's happening off camera. And that why is this camera always capturing phenomena after the fact? Well, Steve said, we witnessed that in the house. There was a camera in the living room. It was trained toward the door. We're all in the kitchen, minding our own business. Keith is in plain sight. And we get these email alerts of a camera motion detected. And we look at the email alerts because it takes snapshots and send them to you. And in the email alerts, it shows the camera. You see a wall. You see the front door, which was the camera should be facing, and the next picture is the wall, okay? Nobody has left their location, so you rush toward the camera, and true to form, it's now facing the wall. That is, it's not a remote control camera. This is a, a camera with a stand on it. It has to be manually turned. You know, there's nobody controlling this camera remotely. 
And to see that, when Steve said he saw that on day two, I believe, they changed their formula of how they're going to carry out the investigation because they realized these spirits are evasive, okay? They're not, there's certain things we have to now incorporate in our investigative method to capture the data. They're not going to give it to us willingly. So they were, they pivoted on day two and threw plan one or plan A out the window, just seeing that alone. And it was, it supported my claim all along of what I've been saying with my difficulties with the cameras. But yeah, you're right. A team should know or going into, especially a haunting like this, which is like I say, intelligent haunting, AKA poltergeist haunting. Mm-hmm. The spirits are intelligent and they are not going to, oh, walk in and throw uh, an ironing board at you. Cause that will be the point, right? Well, okay, mm-hmm. house is haunted, solve that problem. Right. They're not, they're not gonna do that. <laughs> TV, I know, makes it seem that way, mm-hmm. unfortunately, with some of these ghost shows, but reality is a whole different story. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm glad you cleared that up. I mean, there's a, a lot of details here that I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna name some of the activity that happened off at your house here, so we can go through the the wide list of categories here, and then I'm gonna ask you a few more. Um, they got FLIR evidence, uh, lots of fantastic EVPs, very obvious EVPs that were captured in your house um, or your old house. Um, there was also oil. Uh, found weeping from the wall, pictures that have been moved or pushed off the nail, uh, images that have been burnt, including uh, the Bible there, which uh, we'll get into for sure. Then, of course, there was uh, the sound of charging or stampeding, a shaggy-haired man uh, that uh, yeah. likes to choke people out. You could see him, smell him, touch him. Um, then uh, people were scratched. Um, you talked a little bit about that there, but when it comes to... Uh, what you think is going on as far as the Bible being burnt and the numeric 666. It doesn't fit into the Native American storyline. So what's your theory with what's happening? Yeah, so the misconception about the the Bible's catching fire, because uh, that's one of the stickers I get from people, well, Native Americans, cross-burning crosses, burning Bibles, you know, Native Americans are not Christians. I tell people, um, the Bibles that caught fire in that home belong to me. And these Bibles were always kept in my closet in the office. It was not until we were advised by the local church, the Catholic church, and a few paranormal teams to, when we start having phenomena, to display openly your religious beliefs. Put out religious paraphernalia that you own. If you got a Bible, now's a good time to put it out there. And when you put it out there, you put it out there, you want the the entity to see it and get out of your house. Open it to one of your favorite verses, Proverbs or Psalms. Leave it on a kitchen table, coffee table. We chose the hallway bookshelf. It seemed the, the, the most logical places. That's where most of the activity was happening. And then pray, you intend to pray over it, light a candle, and go about your average daily routine. Well, there's a there's a re, there's a there's a footnote that often gets overlooked to that, meaning there could be an adverse reaction, like sage. And the spirits at this instance, when we would put the Bibles out, they did not start torching them right away. They threw them down. 
and threw them on the floor or threw them across the room or threw them at you. I've had Bibles thrown at me. But you're told by the church, well, they, they're supposed to do that. That's, that's, that, that's, that's their reaction, but you got to stay steadfast. So I'll put the Bible back up there again. And they would throw it down. I put it back up there again. Well, now the spirit is like, okay, we're going to take a few of them. We're going to burn a few of them. So it was more of a tit-for-tat reaction, opposite reaction, escalate the activity. And, you know, some people say, well, Native Americans and Bibles don't mix. That's a real kind of, you know, hard pill. And I said, you got to get out of the circle of thinking religion. Nothing about this phenomena we're experiencing has anything to do with religion, except the portion of what happened in the 1800s, meaning the Native Americans who didn't convert to Christianity were often dealt with. You know, those who didn't convert were often dealt with or ostracized, killed, hung, whatever. And you have to take it. This spirit is from that era, the spirit. If he's from that time frame or that time period, and here comes Keith Hokie Dokie throwing Bibles around, crosses, what would his reaction be? What would you think his reaction would be? All you got to do is open up your history books to see what the reaction was then. So why is it a hard reaction now? And people don't understand that because they're thinking, no, or two. It's like people think two forces can't compete in that same house at the same time. Well, Steve Maradon blew that out the window because some of the EVPs came back with Irish accents. Irish people lived in Bothell in the 1800s. Who do you think the Native Americans were fighting? Okay, you have a new world coming in, an old world fighting not to go out, and they're clashing. And some of the EVPs were of Irish accent, you know? So now you have in Miatina, hundred odd years later, come in new house being built over recultivated land, and spirits are doing this and this and that, you know. And the first thing we run to is our Bibles, as we were advised to do. So a portion of guys is going to throw them aside. It's going to toss them. It's going to burn them. It doesn't mean that's Satan. It doesn't mean that's Lucifer. But the spirit wants you to think that. It wants you to think the worst case scenario. And sometimes it's hard not to think that. But for a team, with again, it's up to the team to do their research prior to coming into the home. Me, I'll say, and I have nothing against paranormal investigators as a whole, but I think some paranormal investigators are not investigating or researching when they have downtime. I think downtime research is equally important to being in a house environment or a house location. You know, if, if, I, if I was a researcher, and this is me getting on my soapbox, pardon me, if I was a researcher now during COVID-19 and I was restricted to being in location, I would want to increase my IQ in other departments. I would want to increase my IQ in EMF and K-meter or anything you can think of. I want to increase my IQ in the history of the, of the city and state I live in, of poltergeist, of psi phenomena, of telekinesis. I want to become a subject matter expert during this downtime of all that stuff because I think it's the right thing to do. That way when I come up across a case like Keith's or Tina's or anybody else's, I can recognize these things at the beginning versus the latter. Stephen Don to their credit and Nikki and, the, and Carissa to their credit recognize that at the offset. 
They weren't playing catch up or trying to come in ooh and ah and make it up as they go. If you make it up as you go, you're not going to be able to connect the dots. So many people saw the Bibles as, ah, that's too far-fetched. Native American symbols in the office. Bible burners over here. You got this cross over here. Which one is it, Keith? Is it, is it Native Americans or is it demons? Which one? You can't have both. Who says you can't have it both? I'm not saying anything. The evidence is telling you you can have both. It's the evidence. The poltergeist is burning mm-hmm. Bibles because me and Tina are putting them out there. If I put a phone book out there and said, leave my house, or uh, you know, any book for that matter, mm-hmm. AAA magazine, and, and, rever- and, and, and revered it, you know, put candles around it and say, leave my house right now, they would probably burn that too. They burn whatever you think specifically mm-hmm. is important to you. And that's what I, I, I wish people would understand about this case, especially about the burning Bibles. The Portuguese doesn't care about the Bible. He doesn't fear that. It's burning them because it knows we care about it. And most people, oh, he burned my Bible. Oh, that's Lucifer incarnate. Got to go. That's why it's doing it. We put it out there, it's going to burn. It could be any book for that. Great. Good answer. Um, all right. The book, uh, The Bothell Hell Host, uh, The Poltergeist of Washington State, and then part two, volume two of this three-part series, Attachments. Uh, the third book, you are in process of writing here. And uh, with our time left, I told you this before the show, I want to talk more about this third book because it gets into the mechanics of what we're talking about. And we've only touched the tip of the iceberg here. I imagine you sound like an analytical guy that uh, understands what he's looking at, the nature of a program. You're working IT and, you know, you see the physical impossibilities, magic happening before your eyes when you see something levitate um, and everything else. The the voices in the air, for crying out loud, we haven't mentioned that, uh, you know, yeah. voices mid-air happening in this house. Um, let's talk a little bit about this, um, what you're working on, if you don't mind, with this third book and what you're coming away with as far as the hard mechanics of a haunting. Uh, yeah, so going back to the beginning of when this phenomena started, and as a witness, um, me and Tina had front row seats uh, to all the phenomena happening before us. And one of the things I saw every time a phenomena erupted was um, our current understanding of the laws of physics uh, just either being supported or disavowed in the sense of, whoa, I mean, objects changing in mid-flight, objects levitating, objects going through walls, voices coming out of thin air. How is it can you get a voice on a voice recorder that you're holding or is laying down near you? Clear voice. We just talk about the clear voices. And you and me not hear that same voice with our naked ear. How is it that you can have two devices laying side by side, identical devices, and one device picks it up, the other one doesn't, or you hear it with the naked ear, like an AVP. One device picks it up, but the other one doesn't. 
And these spontaneous fires, you know, the fire department came to our Bothell house. They saw the poster after I doused it and they could not make heads or tails how that poster caught fire. This is the fire department. This is what they do for a living. They saw no incinerary device, no accelerant. Same thing can be said about the Bible. Steve and others held the Bibles in their hand. So my idea for the third book, as I'm writing book one and book two, I'm getting my story out the way. I need to get my story out of my head and be done with it. Book three is not a story. Book three is going to go back and deal with the mechanics of everything we talked about tonight and then get around to talking to, because it's going to go after the quantum level. We got to get down to the quantum, to the classical physics, because believe it or not, it's the Newton law, Einstein's law, all combined versus the quantum mechanics law. They all are at odds with each other in a Portuguese home. You know, things that are unseen are heard. Things that are seen have no sound. You know, we didn't talk about the house humming. And there's just so much there, there, that it really needed to be a book of its own. There was no way I could get it a book one or book two. It was just too long. And it's going to be very technical. And, and therefore, since it's very technical, I have to get everything right and exact more than book one and book two. Book one and book two, I'm just writing based on memory. It's real easy to do. This is going to have to make sense without being too technical, like you'd read in a physics book. And I'm not putting equations in there. I'm not going to make it like, you know, 500, 800 pages. Mm-hmm. But it's going to be interesting. And it's never been done before, but it, it's going to be interesting because it's going to go after not just my phenomena. I've done research and I'm incorporating over... I believe the tally right now is maybe 600 other Portuguese cases that's happened throughout history that resemble ours and some that don't. But some of the fundamentals are always there. I can tell you, you can take any Portuguese case, long time ago, recent, tomorrow, the fundamentals are always the same. And to me, there's a reason for that. There's a reason for the quantum stuff that we see happening, objects teleporting, A-porting, ass-porting, you know, me and Tina were attacked in two places at once. We were attacked in three places. I was attacked in a hotel room. Tina was attacked, you know, leaving the house. Scratches, uh, Patty, who's in the documentary that you mentioned, got these three blister marks that formed on her hand in real time while we were standing there. Three lines, just like something invisible was burning into her hand. Quantum or physics should have some theories behind that. I've uncovered uh, successfully um, some physics that might explain that from a, uh, a spirit point of view. We're going to get into multiple dimensions. You know, one of the things I noticed with my experience is a lot of these voices I hear, you know, with my naked ear are very close to me, but they're invisible. They're like they're in a room with you. They're observing you. They they turn your camera around as soon as your back is turned. They move stuff around. They're relocated to other parts of the house. And I've had dives rain from my ceiling, just dives, rain from my ceiling, fall, hundreds of them. Where does that stuff come from? Where is it at when it's not with you? Where, is, where were they at prior? Where was the Bible that went missing for a year and a half? I don't believe it was ever in the cavity of the house. I believe it was in another dimension. 
science talks about that. With Lisa mm-hmm. Randall, who I've been reading thoroughly, I'm familiar with her, theoretical physicist, she has a lot of theories that I think lends itself to what poltergeists are doing. You know, you ask any physicist, they'll tell you about parallel universes and hidden dimensions and you read the book Flatland. These are scientists writing books and they're saying this stuff is around us. We just can't see it with our naked eye. I did not know it at the time, but I, I know now that the human eye sees less than 1% of reality. We see less than 1%. That means 99.99% of what's real in this universe that's happening between you and me right now, we can't even see. But it's alive. So all that would be book three. Totally, it's going to be illustration galore. Less wording, more illustration. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a firm believer. You got to incorporate the senses. The more you incorporate, so... It's going to be drawings, diagrams, charts, um, you know, all that stuff to where you can see. Uh, we're going to talk about the bone black again. We're going to talk about the wall writing, other wall writings, uh, the San Pedro haunting, the San Pedro Portuguese case. You know, where did that plasma come from? You know, all that stuff will be in book three. Fantastic. Some of the things uh, I wanted to ask you about specifically with uh, – the sounds that happen there. Um, the audience is pretty familiar with my theory on how the phenomena deals with visual mediums as far as recording them. It almost is like a, a no bueno agreement between us, them, and a camcorder in our hand or a camera. But when it comes to audio equipment, uh, it seems like game on. There's a lot more use of uh, using a digital recorder and coming away with some pretty incredible stuff. Um, do you have any theories on why that would be, or do you agree with that? You mean why the voices uh, appear on, on audio devices? Well, why why do you think that, or do you agree that spirits in general are okay with utilizing audio equipment a lot more than showing evidence on a camera? You know, EVPs seem a lot easier to get than, oh, say, yes. an, an, you know, as some kind of image on a camera. Yeah, I have a theory. Um, one of the things, going back to the physics, and, and these are their words and their theories, but they've been around for quite some time, and they've been tested and vetted, and so far they've held up or held up uh, through the test of time, is when you're dealing with video or visual phenomena. One of the things it's hard to capture <clears throat> is the visual, the, the, the visual phenomena. Uh, but physics talks about something with the electron of the uncertainty principle or the observer effect, meaning that the electron itself, you can never have two scenarios at once. You can either observe the electron, but by observing it, you alter its path. Whatever path is on you forever changed it. By knowing the electron's path means you cannot observe it. We're just saying everything. Just drives physics crazy. So they're always stuck in that quandrum of we cannot observe the phenomena because if we observe it, we alter its original state. Therefore, we're not getting its original state by observing it. So that requires more testing, so we just sort of chasing our tail. But it's a mystery, and scientists have yet to figure out why that happens, why the electron or the photon behaves that way. 
a good experiment you've probably heard of is called the double slit experiment, where they, the scientists shoot uh, photons to two slits through a cardboard against the back wall, and the observation it hinders the effects of that experiment. The other one is the observer effect, and I, and I know this to be true because I saw it in the home, and this has been documented in other Portuguese cases, of objects that are about to levitate. Most people, when they tell you they've seen objects fly across the room, they never see it originally move. They see it in mid-flight. I can tell you I've never seen an object go from one side of the room to the other, except in mid-flight. I've never seen it leave the stand or pillar it was resting on, but we know it was resting on there because it's now in mid-flight. I have seen or heard things vibrate behind me, and I turn, and the object looks like it's about to take flight, but me turning towards it is like the spirit changed its mind. It's like, no, he's looking now. But the minute I turn my back, going back to that observer effect, the object goes flying. Weirdest thing ever. Like, why is me observing it? Like, that's going to change my belief that it didn't happen. No. I think there's something there that relates to capturing visual phenomena. Now, the audio phenomena, as you know, by definition, is not visual, it's audio. The sound can very easily be captured because sound, you know, is very interesting and very fundamental, the nature of it. It comes in different ways and patterns. And I've learned this through my recent research uh, that there's sound all around you and me right now. There's infrasound, there's ultrasound. Sound is invisible to the naked ear, but sound nonetheless. And some of these frequencies, almost like our AM or FM radio, these devices are very exceptional in capturing. They can capture these because the receiver, you know, is picking up these audible uh, from the environment. You know, sound is somehow reaching the speaker of whatever device and therefore leaving a recording, but I can't figure out, and what I'm still trying to figure out is how are they getting past your eardrum and my eardrum? Right. How are they getting... Mm-hmm. Pass all that and onto the device themselves. Uh, I found a few websites, a few scientific journals that give a theory as to that, uh, which will be in book three. But I'm still researching it, uh, and it's very interesting. I think it, I think it finally answers the question of what's actually taking place. But um, all phenomena that we experience, be it visual. Um, smell, the stench smell, the objects throwing. I could tell you the forever constant in that house and in other Portuguese cases, if you, if you dig deep into them, you find the common denominator among all of them, the thing they all share, is the sounds being reported. You know, you always hear an investigator has to pay important attention to detail because the witness, meaning myself, we don't know what we're talking about except we just reported what we saw or heard. So if you ask us, well, Keith, did you hear anything strange when the plant flew across the room? You know, think about it. Yeah, yeah. I heard a pop. I heard a hum. I heard a twing, a tweak. And that's been reported in other oh, Portuguese yeah. cases. Hold that thought for a second, Keith. Did you say you hear a pop sound? Yeah. yeah. There's, sounds, there's a contraction, a concussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, before the phenomena happens that you normally would mm-hmm. ignore. Mm-hmm. 
because the phenomenon just supersedes it. Like, oh man, mm-hmm. it just you know puts it on the back row. Mm-hmm. But you have, I didn't know, I didn't know early on until I started paying attention. Mm-hmm. I was like, aha. Uh-huh. So there's right. some sort of sound association mm-hmm. with the physical phenomenon. I think it begets it. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I've been trying to drum that into the listeners' ears and anybody else who will listen that if you record enough, you will see uh, on a program like Audacity that visually you can see these pops, hits, clicks, and taps happen before an EVP or during an EVP or before some kind of app port happens. So I'm comforted that you said that. Yeah, if you watch the – there's a video on my YouTube channel of the – Carissa and Nikki are, are conducting the EVP session over one of the burnt Bibles, and they're asking the spirit to turn the pages. And right before the pages start turning mysteriously, you hear the pop, poons, and pings in other parts of the house. It just wows the mind. You know, an average person not who's so trained on, oh, I just want to hear EVPs, you know, a thrill seeker, they ignore that. But I heard it, and I was like, yeah. That's what we hear prior to an activity taking place because the energy in the room is changing. You know, the, the, the barometric pressure, the mm-hmm. all kind of things, the atmospheric pressure, and it's just energy. You know, it's all energy in this fundamentalist form. And the spirit who's making these pages turn, mm-hmm. they have to use that energy. They're using it in other parts of the house is going to have to be compensated or taken away from. Mm-hmm. You hear these pops, pooms, and pings. Steve Mayer talks about it great in his book, Fires and Whispers. You love his book. He talks about it a lot. And that because he heard him. He heard it. He's like, the pops, the pooms, the pings. Mm-hmm. Me and Tina heard it constantly all the time. And I, I dialed back and I started making a journal of it in both mm-hmm. books of, yes, that's what you hear before something big starts to happen. Even the feeling of uneasiness, the infamous mm-hmm. feeling of being watched or I feel uneasy. I notice there's sounds associated that are precursors to even that. And so, like I said, I'm a, that's dissected a lot in book three. You, um, you're going to love book three. Oh, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, I, we've been calling it uh, like a paranormal sound barrier, you know, being punched through where, you know, a, a, yeah. just imagine yeah. the energy passing through a, a paranormal boundary or even through the substrate of certain objects like wood or glass or metal will have the, the it doesn't really matter yes. what the sound is, but you just imagine, imagine energy passing through some kind of matter or substrate. Yeah, that's all it is. It's just mm-hmm. energy transforming, rearranging itself, you know, into your new immediate environment. Mm-hmm. And like I said, when you people study this, they get that learning mm-hmm. and that helps decipher future cases. You know, when you hear, you know, Keith Linda say this, Tom over there says that, Jill over there says that, you understand that in itself we just talked about, that's evidence too. You know, that 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 I mean, I don't know if you know Dr. Barry Coleman mm-hmm. when he did the uh, concussion experiment about the rappings, the strange rapping noises. He wrote a phenomenal PDF about the strangeness of the knocking sounds associated with Portuguese cases. And he included a lot of previous Portuguese cases, including the infield, of recorded rappings, you know, the banging, the tapping sounds, the constant tapping. 
And he found out that the sound, based on his experiment, he used Audacity and other software, the sound was coming from within the foundation of the environment, from the wood of the house. The sound, because they use man-made rapping noises, you know, that's out there in the environment, and mm-hmm. they use what the Portuguese theorized rapping noises, and they were able to say to see the sound signature are different, much different, way different, like the EVPs, and then you mm-hmm. saw the documentary with Dr. Uh, uh, not Barry Coleman, but uh, Barry Fitzgerald was saying mm-hmm. the frequency range of the male and female voice that captured the Stephen R. Captain Q's house are outside the normal spectrum of human male voices. You know, seven billion people on this planet, regardless of how individual we are as people, our voices all live within a spectral range of voices. You know, regardless of how we sound, you know, in person, we all live, there's a threshold. You can put a, a circle around the human being's voice threshold. These EVPs exist outside that, meaning the sound is not coming from human vocal cords, in theory. You know, it's coming from something, energy, sound, electronic, you know, mm-hmm. contrived, artificial, the mimicking, you know, when you talk about ghost mimicking, all that mm-hmm. stuff, you know, what determines our voice sound is our vocal cords, mm-hmm. you know, the muscles the air going through while I talk. Well, spirits don't have that, right? So why would their voice be in our same, in our same spectrum? No, it wouldn't be. It would be different. It would be higher, you know? How are they making it higher, you know, through, through their, I guess, majesty over sound waves? So, it was very interesting. Right. Yeah, yeah, there came a moment in the documentary, again, Demons in Seattle Uncovered. You can watch it free on YouTube. It's all about Keith's case um, where a uh, light fell off the wall and they did a measurement of the frequency and the hertz level based upon dropping the light. Even that was, yeah, even that was, yeah. Right, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, whenever is an act, and we'll just say, you know, for, uh, for now, Whenever is a, something that accidentally falls off a wall, higher in decibel sound than something purposely dropped. Because Stephen Dodd purposely dropped the light again, and they could get nowhere close to the sound level of it when it originally fell. They tried to duplicate it, and I think they got up to 36 decibels. The fall was up at least 60 something odd decibels. And it was just a different range in the sense of, you know, and I mean, Tina knew, we felt this weirdness because we lived in the house. I mean, I've had loud crashing noises, like Tina would talk about the piano crashing through a ceiling, or it sounded like somebody dropped a piano in the middle of your, on your living room hard floor. And you rush, you know, you're in the middle of the night, you're rushing to this loud sound, you're thinking your house has been invaded, and there's nothing, right? You hear a plant being thrown or crashing, you rush to the noise, there's nothing. Nothing, beer bottle, same thing. Glass shattered, nothing. Come back to that spot 30 minutes later, and you'll find what you were looking for 30 minutes ago. You'll find a shattered beer bottle. You'll find shattered glass, shattered vase, you know, upside down coffee table. You know, it's like the sound 
came 30 minutes before the debris, you know, which just riddles the mind from a physical standpoint of mm-hmm. how is that even possible? <laughs> you know? It's exciting though, Keith. I mean, as you're describing this as a, as a sci-fi geek, and to know that we, you know, don't have to live in a fictional world to enjoy science fiction. It could be science fact. That's damn exciting. Everything you said, that that's possible. I mean, it... It, it is possible. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating. And yeah, there's no rhyme or reason, but mm-hmm. you know it to be true because your eyes and ears are not lying to you. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the furniture dragging sounds that Nikki and Carissa heard while house mm-hmm. monitoring. Uh, from the hallway of lot of large furniture being dragged around. Uh, there's a camera in the hallway that's capturing the sound of sending an alert. So, you know, the sound is real because it triggered the camera alarm in the first place, sound detected, but there's an identical camera in the next room over no more than 20 feet. And you log into that camera and hear nothing, nothing whatsoever. So, yeah, the sci-fi part of me, the geek inside of me, the IT part of me, just I'm just wowed about that stuff. I mean, I, I expect to see that in a Spielberg movie. I don't expect to see it in my own living room. But I did. Right. Now I have questions, and I know other people have questions, and I've learned from other people's experience, and I found a lot of stuff, and therefore that's why it's purposely called mm-hmm. uh, the night side of physics. Portuguese dash the night side of physics, because this is the physics part, in my opinion, that doesn't get talked about a lot in hauntings. I think the paranormal community does, does themselves a disservice by not talking about the, the mechanics mm-hmm. of what it's being reported and going back to the scientific community saying, hey, what you guys see over there in Geneva and the CERN accelerator and all that stuff, with all gadgets and stuff, people are seeing in their homes. All they're doing over there in those accelerators is smashing atoms and watching atoms and electrons and muons and peons and neutrinos and all that stuff disappear. Ask any physicists that I have a few friends over, and I tell you, we see electrons disappear all day. And we don't know where they're going. <laughs> you know, we see <laughs> atoms and stuff appear, mm-hmm. and we don't know where they came from. And I'm like, <laughs> what? Like, yeah, every day. But like you see, you're like, yeah, all the time stuff materializes, Keith, and we see, we study. Yeah. That's what we do. And I'm like, oh, well, over here in Boston, I got a house where I see stuff appearing. <laughs> I don't know who came from. Right, right. Now I know where the coin shortage started. It started at your house, Keith. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly where it's at. Yeah, I got right. four in my house. Yeah. Yeah. Especially all the dimes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Over at Keith's house. <laughs> Check him out, man. Um, Hey, before I forget here, too, you mentioned your YouTube channel. What's your YouTube channel called? Uh, people can find just type in Keith L in the, in the YouTube search bar. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's easy to find you. It's over 400 videos there, so it's easy to find. Um, yeah, Keith okay. L in the, in the YouTube. Okay. Uh, Steve's doc, I mean, Don Phillips documentary, Demons in Seattle, I've covered. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's two Steve Mara documentaries in, in uh, conjunction with that one on my YouTube channel about the house, an hour and a half long lecture Steve gives mm-hmm. uh, about the evidence found and another documentary of the narration of what him and uh, Nick Kyle mm-hmm. and Don Phillips found. 
So a lot of, lot of stuff in there, a lot of, um, I mean, we're still combing through. I find stuff periodically. Uh, there's still audio that's yet to be listened to. Um, every now and then somebody on my YouTube channel, after watching a, a video, or introduce a voice to me, a, a, a voice. We put it through the, the analyzer, we vet it, we weigh it, and then if it's legit, I'm like, yep, that, that, that's one of them, that's it. It's just so much stuff. Um, mm -hmm. People who look at this case, who do their own research, um, spend time and do their own research, uh, definitely read book one, book two, because all the evidence is in there and the documentary. Um, it's academic, in my opinion, now, about the Baltimore House being legit and real. Um, the Australian uh, parapsychology or psychological research from Australia mm -hmm. has uh, looked at the evidence and have, have deemed my house uh, rewriting what we understand about poltergeist. Uh, the Ghost Club last week did a, uh, a seminar. Uh, I got to, I'm going to make that public in a few weeks where they discussed the Bothell House. Uh, the SPR the same way. Um, there's just a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. And everybody's, you know, nobody was dismayed. Who've been in the paranormal were dismayed by the episode, unfortunately, that was on Travel Channel. Uh, right. They saw that as just how not to do an investigation. That's what that's what they that's what they were like. <laughs> right. They talked to me and saw the evidence in the notes. They were like, "Yeah, this stuff is typical Portuguese phenomena." What interests us about your case, Keith, is the the longevity and the frequency of the activity taking place, but I mean, you're on the up and up, you're, on the, you're an IT guy, you're a specialist, mm -hmm. and you got witnesses at the yin-yang, cases mm -hmm. well documented, and your story stays the same you know, all the time. As it went from three Bibles to four Bibles, or five mm -hmm. or two or one, it's three Bibles, you know. So, so now, yeah. who's, who's in the house now, Keith? Do you have any idea? Uh, husband and wife moved into the house July of 2016. Um, I never met them. I didn't meet them. Um, I've been asked, have I gone by and put my head around and saw them? I have not. Mm -hmm. I purposely have avoided the home. Right. Uh, my main reason, once again, going back to my, my low fear factor is not because I'm, you know, like you're saying, oh, I still live in Bothell. It's not because I'm fearful of the house. It's because I understand how Portuguese phenomena works is I don't want to go to the house and ask people, Hey, are you having anything weird going on? I don't. I don't want to. They knew the house was haunted. They still bought it. Uh, I don't think they knew the, the the specifics of what everything that took place. And to me, that's in their favor. The less you know about the house, mm -hmm. the better off you will be. What we learned, and Steve says it in his documentary and book, is that house is always going to have low level activity. Mm -hmm. The lowest level activity is going to be oblivious to certain residents. Right. Me, what got me in trouble was I would have things happen and I would go searching for it. I knew I did not lose my key. I knew if I leave a light on in my office when I go get a glass of water and it's off when I come back, I knew that wasn't me. Mm -hmm. Me and Tina don't have kids, so we know where each other's at. Tina's walking. I passed Tina to get back to my room. Let me put a camera and just train it on my office for 24 hours. Oh, and behold, my camera's not missing. So that made me dig more and more and more as to what was causing the phenomena, which ratcheted up the activity. The average home occupant, and I have family, we all lose stuff, miss stuff, misplaced stuff, you know.
But if I go around there telling them, hey, is any Bibles burnt yet? You know, people are going to start looking over their shoulder. Every crook and cranny noise they hear, uh, they're going to think it's Mr. Ghost. So uh, I believe less is more. And also, the important fact of all, not everybody experiences phenomena. Rhonda and her family moved into the house 2008 and left 2009. So that was five years before we even arrived. There were three other families between us and them. I have not found them. I have not contacted them. But it's quite possible they did not have any activity. They did. I think there's more of a synergy and energy that we brought me and Tina in my engagement level that made the activity what it was. Uh, if they never have activity in the home, uh, it doesn't make my case less real. Mm-hmm. No, it, it doesn't. A lot of houses today, Enfield being one and others, the house is fine after the, the, the people who experienced the most hellish activity uh, moved out. And once again, I think from a poltergeist point of view, that's done for a reason. The poltergeist is not here to make believers out of 7 billion people. No. If you want to do that, all I have to do is hold a press conference. It could very easily do it. Mm-hmm. As the evidence suggests. Now, the right. poltergeist gets its and maintains its enigma by doing exactly what it's doing now. My last question for you, Keith, is that uh, you've moved, but has something moved with you? Yeah, unfortunately, that's what book two was about, or is about attachments uh, named specifically for that reason. Uh, when I moved out uh, May of 2016, four years to the day of when I moved in. And that question hung over my head. Now, that was a subconscious fear factor of me, which subconsciously probably played a role in why I stayed in the Bothell House for so long, is what happens when I move? Am I taking the hell with me? And any percentage of the hell in that house is a lot. Um, and yeah, true to form, uh, day one of me living in my new place, the water puddle uh, phenomena happened. I, it only, had only happened once in the Bothell house, but it happened day one of my new location. Uh, I still occasionally experience uh, electronical issues, uh, weird battery drainage, uh, mechanical problems with appliances, brand new appliances. They swap them out, put them in somebody else's unit, works fine back in my unit now. Uh, shadowy figures, I still see. Uh, the poking and the prodding while sleeping. Uh, we didn't talk about this tonight, but the heartbeats uh, here or feel, you feel them more than you hear them, or the pulsation from within the mattress or within the pillow. So all that and the nightmares and the night terrors are what are still continuing. Um, nothing major, nothing physical to the scale of the Bothell House, but still uh, I would call this a more personal uh, level of activity um, being witnessed. And sometimes it makes its presence known when out and about with friends or uh, in the dating scene. But um, yeah, so that's still, that's what book two is primarily about book two talks about the phenomenon still happening, the black wall, which we talked about tonight, and um, why the house uh, was haunted, uh, which we partially talked about tonight. But it's in very detailed form of why that house was the house from hell versus any other house on that block. My guest tonight has been Keith Linder, the book Bothell Hell House. 
and attachments available now for anybody who can get to a computer and order one. And then your third book, which I'm extremely excited about coming up soon. Uh, what do you think, 2021, 2020, the third one? Uh, should be out December of this year. I'm trying to get out uh, my birthday, uh, December 15th of this year. Uh, so, yeah, uh, the, the upside of COVID being on lockdown earlier this year is I'm way ahead of schedules for in the writing department. So, um, yeah, I'm still planning to uh, get it out by December this year. All right. And the documentary again on YouTube, Demons in Seattle Uncovered. Hey, yeah. thanks for your time tonight, Keith. A real pleasure, man. Hey, man, thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Again, that was Keith Linder, who's still at it and sounds like things are still happening at his new place and I don't imagine Keith is going to go away quietly into the night just based upon some bad press from the travel channel so I uh, look forward to meeting the guy sometime and uh, see what happens uh, person to person a mano a mano maybe go over some working theories and get back to you and record a, a part two to this here but uh, again check out the book the Bothell Hell House, a poltergeist of Washington State, and attachments, and soon coming his third book, and then of course this documentary, Demons in Seattle, uncovered free on YouTube. And who doesn't love that price? Again, uh, if you'd like to be a guest, you can do it. Just shoot me an anonymous email, uh, strangebrowradio at gmail If you are an extended experiencer of paranormal interaction and uh, would like to talk about that anonymously don't need to be a guest we'd just love to uh, compare notes and if you're local up here in washington state somewhere i'd love to uh, talk with you and maybe even more uh, start to work with you privately about your case also uh, check out the youtube channel strange brow radio has its own youtube channel the more you hit the thumbs up button the more uh, flexibility I guess we have on there and subscribers also check out our merchandise channel you just go to www.strangebrowradio you'll see the app to click on the merch and there's uh, hoodies, shirts, socks, all sorts of stuff and soon hopefully those will be promoted on the YouTube channel so you can just click away when you watch a YouTube video and of course patreon.com forward slash strangebrowradio where your support and in particular I don't know if I want to name names, but someone made a really generous uh, offer. Um, I don't know if it's a one-time offer, but uh, any bit like that certainly helps uh, coming up for the fall season where I'm probably going to need more gear in order to get out into the field and do this. Also, check out coming up, I believe, August 4th is the date tickets will go on sale and I will be hosting along well, I won't be hosting but I'll be leading the control panel and speaking at the second Sasquatch rendezvous or maybe it's the third Sasquatch rendezvous and you can get tickets starting I believe August 4th that is at sasquatchrendezvous.com remember there's a Z and an X in there don't screw up like I did and I'll be speaking. I know Daryl Adams is going to be speaking. Uh, Scott Taylor is going to be speaking. These are all Bigfoot people. And um, I'll be talking more in depth about uh, some different leads regarding the Al Moon Lab and what is happening at the Al Moon Altar. And uh, everywhere in between, 
also the filming that has begun. Uh, hopefully I'll have some flexibility on the talk of talking more about uh, what's happening behind the scenes with the Al Moon Lab. So that's it. You all have a uh, great rest of the week. And be safe out there. I will, of course, see you in the trees. Oh, 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 oh,